James chapter 5. I'm going to be reading from verses 7 through 11. This is a part two to our series on being patient, patient farmers, athletes, and soldiers. And we're going to be looking at a soldier this morning in the life and story of Job. Follow as I read verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray together. Father, we want to one more time ask for you to invade our hearts with blessing from your truth. Lord, we're going to look at the life and endurance marathon run of Job a person who exudes steadfastness and stick in a hard, hard season of life. And God, his faith was indestructible because it was authentic. And I pray that, Lord, our faith at this time through this story and book of the Bible and Bible passage from James 5.11, that our faith would be strengthened forever. We love you, God. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I was uh, sort of struck by the life of Job this week and his endurance run all the way to the end. And somehow, as I was thinking about people in our culture who have endured, the name Steve Jobs came to mind. As you, many of you know, he is one of the inventors of our age, having been the co-founder of Apple Incorporated. He was responsible for the iPad, the iPhone, iTunes, and everything that is um, touchscreen and that modernized movement that we experience and enjoy in our culture. Many of you probably have Bibles that you're reading off of a touchscreen even right now. Most of us know that he died of respiratory complications due to pancreatic cancer, um, about 10 days ago, October the, the 5th, he died and he left a legacy of technology. He's been compared to Alexander Graham Bell, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison for the impact that he has had and will have even though he's gone with the technology that he formulated with his company and companies. I uh, sort of looked at a biographical sketch of him and then also read a speech that he gave as a commencement address in 2005 to Stanford University graduates there and was impacted by his zeal and love for what he did. He gave a speech, in fact, that was titled um, to Stanford University. It was entitled, Death is Very Likely the Single Best Invention of Life. It gives us an insight as to why this man, in the later years of his life, he died young in his 50s, knowing that he was going to die, was able to give such a contribution. He was able to push hard at the end of his life to produce 
He was worth $8.3 billion by the end of his life, but he started out as a college dropout. Some of you might know that his adopted parents were funding his college, though they didn't really have the money to do it. And so he dropped out and then audited classes that later impacted him more, even though he didn't graduate from college. They impacted him in skills so that he could create the Macintosh computer which actually was a template for other companies as they created um, their computer systems as well. And then his company grew to being a company worth $2 billion. It started in his parents' garage. It was worth $2 billion. By the time he was 30, he had 4,000 employees, and they hired an executive to come in and run the company, and they saw Steve Jobs as not really fit for being part of the company anymore, so he was fired. So he created later on his other company called Next and then ultimately was bought back out because he was part of the uh, origination of Pixar films and animation. Many of you have benefited from those different animated films, which uh, cartoons will never be the same because of his contribution there. But he was bought back out by Apple and so ended up, ended up creating the iTunes and, and different technologies of touchscreen um, towards the end of his life. And I thought, well, why did this guy produce at the end of his life? What is, what is the clue to enduring like he did and being that productive? And perhaps this quote will help us that he um, gave at that commencement address. He said, remembering that you, ha- that you are going to die is the best way to know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. In other words, this is a man who made the big decisions of his life following his dreams and doing the things that he loved most of all. And that was sort of the secret to his success. He, he lived an authentic human life. But as some of you might know, just researching him, he was a, basically known to be a practicing Buddhist. So his love and life authenticity can only go so far. But for the Christian... Because we have the true God and we have someone that we can truly love and someone who we can serve through suffering in the most authentic way, we have the greatest opportunity to live out an authentic faith and to endure through suffering doing what we love most of all because it's spawned by the one that we love most of all and that is the Lord. We have authentic faith. We have an authentic God. And there's no better example, I think, in the scripture, in the context of enduring through suffering and who had the most sort of unconquerable faith as an example for us to follow than the life of Job, the person Job. Job was put next to um, the life of Noah and the life of Daniel in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, puts those three men in the same caliber and context. The book of Job is 42 chapters long, and it's known as wisdom literature. It's like the Psalms or the Proverbs or the Song of Solomon. But let me just emphasize to you, though the book of Job is not a historical book, it's not a book to teach us history, It probably was one of the first books ever written, and it is indeed historically accurate. And Job did live and die in history. It's a real man. This was not a fable or a a moral, a, a story of morals for us to follow. This was a real man 
who was godly, who suffered in extreme ways so that we could follow his life by example in steadfastness. Look at verse 11 of James 5 again. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job was an example to people in Old Testament times, New Testament times, and he is for us today. He's like the farmer that we talked about, the enduring farmer who is an example of someone who sows hard and works hard in the vineyard, in his land, sowing seed and then trusting God. And as Christians are to be farmer-like people who are waiting for the Lord's return, we're also to be those, as verse 8 talks about, who establish their hearts. People who put iron inside their hearts and are ready to go the distance like an athlete who's not going to give up no matter what the cost is in their life. Like Jesus Christ, who set his face like flint, who set his jaw towards Jerusalem, ready to go to the cross no matter what befell him on the way. That's what we're called to be like. And then lastly, the prophets are mentioned at the end of verse 10 and going into verse 11. They were considered blessed because they endured. They were Hebrews 11.38 like, of whom the world was not worthy. They were sawn in two. They, They would go the distance and they would die for their faith. They would endure all the way to the end. They'd be like Jeremiah who was lowered down into a a mud-filled cistern by ropes by the king during that time who wasn't going to back down. They were like Daniel. They were like the friends of of Daniel in the time who said, we're not going to bow down to the idols. We're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. We're not going to follow Nebuchadnezzar. And if the Lord, even if he doesn't spare us in the fire, we know this God, and so we're going all the way. That's the kind of faith that James is trying to have exercised in the church. And this faith is modeled in Job. Now, Job, as you look at this text and think about the main theme of patience, perhaps Job doesn't strike you as the most patient individual. He really wasn't the patient farmer, was he? He, he was outspoken and agitated, if you've read the book of Job. He, he, he led a very complicated time as he suffered through the difficulties that um, befell him. But even though perhaps he wasn't the most patient person, James actually cast Job as a person who was steadfast. Look at that. We're looking at the steadfastness of Job, the endurance of Job. And the word steadfast is a Greek word, and it's one of my favorite ones, so you'll hear it again and again. It's hupomone. It means to bear up under and keep going. You're bearing up under suffering as it piles upon you with unforeseen catastrophes and circumstances, situations, things you're suffering through, things you're going through. And instead of running out from under them, you embrace the struggle and consider it joy and remain under And as you're pushing up under the pressure by faith, God is allowing the pressure to come down on you to build spiritual muscle. That's James 1, 1 and 2. And verse 12 of James chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast because you'll receive the crown of life. That is the Christian life. And Job is a man who endured in that way. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfectly patient. 
which gives us a little bit of a release valve in our own hearts, right? He expressed himself through the struggle, but he never forsook the faith and went all the way to the finish line. That is this remarkable man who's a testimony of faith. That is Job. Just to give you an overview of Job, you might want to be turning there. 42 chapters. We're going to look through the entire book this morning together. And um, it's going to be an amazing time, I trust, um, as we look through this book of the Bible. But I do want you to get a sort of whole snapshot of what's there. Because this is a rare jewel in the Bible to create Christian contentment as you go through suffering. Job is uh, a book of the Bible that is a testimony of him, Job, the one who loses everything in eight verses. Job chapter 1, we're going to look at it in a minute, loses all of his industry, all of his health, all of his children, everything. He's losing his marriage. It's all wiped out in eight verses. And then you have Job who begins to complain and say, Lord, where did you go? And by the way, I wish I had never been born. And then chapters 4 through 31 are three different cycles of debates where Job's friends show up. And these are genuine, lifelong friends of Job who are coming to console and help this man who's gone through you know, the unforeseeable, incalculable catastrophes that you can experience on earth And so there's three cycles of dialogue where Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are trying to help a friend out. And then you have Elihu who shows up at the end. Then God speaks to Job, and then Job repents, and then Job is rewarded in the end. That is the book of Job. Now I want to ask a couple questions to try to get our arms around Job's experience and to bring it to your life personally. First of all, this is the first question I have. Why should Job have quit? Why should Job have quit? This is sort of the question that's begged here. Why Job should have quit? From a human standpoint, from a natural perspective... All these things happening to Job probably would make a strong case that Job should have thrown in the towel long before more stuff kept happening to him. The first thing that was happening to him is that he could have believed that his religion failed him. That his religion didn't help him. Look at Job 1 verses 1 through 5. Job is considered a blameless man and a wealthy man. He had it all in the early, you know, antiquitous culture. He had everything. He had all the herds. He had a teeming, strong, multiplying industry. He had seven boys, three girls who, they're, they're labeled as, you know, three and seven, the perfect number of children here. In other words, he was guaranteed a a generation upon generation upon generation of a legacy for his family and blessing in that way. That was considered strong blessing in terms of his future to have that many children to take care of him and to bless him for all of his days. But look at verse 5. This is the kind of heart this man had for his kids. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. 
And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. The context here is that his kids enjoyed, they enjoyed entertainment together. They would have parties together. They enjoyed their relationships together. What a blessed family situation. And Job was very concerned, not just that they had superficial joy, but that they were right with God. And so he was proactively investing in them and offering burnt offerings to the Lord in case they might have sinned for things that maybe they would have done. And so when suddenly his children were taken from him, it could have been that this man would have said, listen, I was investing. I was doing all I could do for my kids to set them up for spiritual success and then they're gone? What went wrong? Does that communicate anything to you? Have you ever invested in your family in that way and then all of a sudden the wheels are falling off? That could have been Job's testimony that could have been his perspective. Job was also being attacked by an enemy. His enemy was attacking him. That's Satan himself. Job was completely unaware that Satan and God were having a conversation in the courts of heaven and that God was saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job to try him and to test him and that Satan was rebuffing this In verse 9, Satan says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed blessed the works of his hands. And then verse 11, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so God gives Satan permission to rip everything away from him. And that's exactly what happened. His industry saving security were all wiped out. His marriage was on the edge. His family, his children were dead. And then ultimately we're going to see that his health was failing. Look at verse 13. Now there was a day when the sons, his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Everything stripped away in rapid-fire succession. It's been said that perhaps... None of us have experienced this kind of catastrophe all at once. But many of us have experienced losses like these in our lifetime. Where we have to struggle through the question of why did this have to happen to me? God, why did you allow this circumstance in my 
life and everything was taken from him, even his health. Look at Job 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This man contracted something that would be akin to elephantitis. This is his skin was falling off. He was so contorted by the disease that struck him that his friends, his lifelong friends, could barely recognize him at all. His wife, and that's point five, his marriage is failing. His wife says, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God and die? You know what she said? She's basically saying to her husband, why don't you just commit suicide? Or at least spiritual suicide. Curse God and see what God does to you. This is over. It's a sham. Give it up, Job. Worse than that, I'm going to make the case that worse than that is where his friends show up. And his friends have lost faith in him. I mean, it is ridiculously horrific what Job is experiencing and going through. But then for his security group to show up, his lifelong friends who know Job best of all and would trust his heart for them to reject him is perhaps one of the most hurtful, difficult endurance runs that he had to face. Because their theology, their focus, their biblical counseling was to blame Job for what had happened to him. This is blame counseling. This is a religion of performance and works, of legalism. I would venture to say a satanic version of counsel that is soul-destroying. And that's the onslaught that Job had to persevere and endure through. Very difficult to have your heart cut out by your friends, right? Have your heart ripped apart and untrusted by your friends. The friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they come, they make an appointment, they show up, verse 12 of chapter 2. They see him from a distance. They don't recognize him. They raise their voices up and weep. They tear their robes and put ashes over their heads. They're, they're rendered speechless because they don't understand why a godly man like Job would have certain things befall him of this grotesque nature. They can't make heads or tails of it. And ultimately, it begins to spin in their minds uh, where they're groping for answers. And where they come out at the end is that Job must have some secret sin, some hidden Thing that they don't know about, buried behind the scenes that, have, that has plagued him and put him under the curse of God. That's the only way they can make heads or tails of it from all the wisdom that they know. All of what we would call biblical wisdom, but misapplied. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Well, in chapter 3, we see how Job is actually losing his own soul. He's um, metaphorically, he's losing his soul. He's losing his, his footing before God in his relationship. And he's cursing, verse 1 of chapter 3, the day of his birth. 
He wishes he never would have been born, verse 3. And then verse 11, he says, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why wasn't I, verse 16, a stillborn? Why did this have to happen to me? Have you ever been there? Is it okay to be there where you're struggling in your faith and you can't make heads or tails of it and you're crying out like the psalmist did where you say, Why? A lot of the psalms are filled with hope, but a lot of the psalms, maybe half of the Psalter, is David and others saying, where are you, God? And it's a faith that's alive, but barely. And that's where Job found himself, and he felt like God had left him. Look at Job 6, verse 4. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My soul drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Look at verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, to just do away with me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. That would be my comfort. That's where this man was. Look at Job 7, verses 6 through 9. It says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. It was hopeless. It was hopeless. Well, look further. How hopeless was this man? Look at verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. This man was low. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. It says, Behold, he passes by me. This is God he's talking about. I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? Look at verse 18. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. This was a man who was physically and spiritually dying as he heaved in and out for breath, both emotional and physical. Look at chapter 13. I'm sorry, go to chapter 23 instead. Chapter 23, we'll get to 13. Chapter 23, look at verse 8. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, he is working, but I do not behold him. He turns to the right, but I do not see him. He can't get his footing. He can't find God. But let me just say this, and I've already said it once and I'll reiterate it. Job's greatest struggle... And the greatest portion of this poetic book is his struggle against his best friends to make heads or tails of what was going on with him. What was falling apart, according to all of these chapters, was his heart as his friends were turning their backs on him. And they were using the Bible, as it were, to spiritualize the situation and to say, look, just turn around with God, just repent, and this is all going to right itself. It's the worst thing in the world you can do to somebody to spiritualize pain and say that it's your fault when they didn't have that insight. They didn't understand what was going on. The first cycle is Eliphaz. He's the one who's first speaking to Job to try to help him out. Eliphaz the Temanite, look at verse 6 of chapter 4. 
Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished. That's kind of a proverb here that he's laying out there. Who, who that's innocent has ever perished? I mean, this doesn't make sense. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish. You've obviously sown this in your life. You've sown seed of iniquity and that's why this is happening to you. That's the answer. How hurtful is that? Look at chapter 5 verse 17. He spiritualizes the pain here. Eliphaz does. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. You should be blessed because God's disciplining you. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Don't don't turn your back on this. This is a blessing for you. That was perverse counsel. It was as perverted as John 9 when the disciples who were walking with Jesus by a blind man said, Who sinned? This, this man or his parents that brought him to blindness. And Jesus' response was that this man was to suffer in this way for the glory of God. This is confused counsel. The next cycle is Bildad chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 3 through 7. Bildad goes, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Let's stop there. Now it's getting personal. Job's children just died. And so this friend is rubbing salt into that wound saying, look, if it was your children's fault, then that's really what's happening. Let's just get this thing right and out in the open. Verse 5, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. How wrong is it when people promote a false gospel, and I dare say a false religion of Antichrist, where they say, look, if you would just have enough faith, then you would be healed in this life. The devil has caused your cancer. The devil has caused your, you know, suffering. The devil has caused you to lose all of your wealth. And so now you need to counter that with faith. God has given you the secret recipe for prosperity. That's that kind of wrong gospel. That is a wrong way to think. God has called us to be like Jesus. And then often, as is often the case, we are called to suffer And trust in the sovereignty of God and watch God's grace pour out into our lives so that by grace we endure. And when we are weak, as Paul said, we are made strong. That's the gospel. It's a call to suffer. Now, we will have prosperity in this life and we do enjoy family and relationships and we should try to accumulate wealth so that we can give it away. We want to make more so we can spend more for the glory of God. But we have no guarantees in this life that we will not suffer. James 1, 1 and 2, again, consider it all joy when various trials come. If they haven't come yet, they're coming and we need to be prepared understanding the sovereignty of God. Well, here's the third cycle is, is Zophar. 
Zophar. Actually, let me, let me just look at a few verses under Bildad again. This is chapter 8, verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. This is what Bildad is guaranteeing to Job that he can't guarantee. Look at verse 22. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of wicked will be no more. He's saying, look, you'll be vindicated if you just repent. Here's the third cycle. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. This is Zophar, the third counselor, the Nahamathite. He says, verse 2, should a multitude of words go unanswered? A man full of talk be judged right? He's mocking Job at this point. He's mocking what Job has just said. Should your babble silence men? And should you mock? Or And when you mock, shall no shame, no one shame you? In other words, everything, Job, you've just said is a mockery, and I'm mocking you for it. Should no one shame you for this? So Zophar goes to shame him. Verse 4, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You know what he just said in that poetic phrase? You deserve worse punishment than you're actually experiencing that's been rendered to you it should be worse for you i mean how cruel and wicked is that and he's using his his twisted theology and twisted doctrine to lay a guilt trip a mocking guilt trip onto job to try to help him zophar was so filled with pride at this point that he was of no help at all. And Job at each point is countering these cycles of guilt by saying, listen, I don't understand. I don't know where God is. I know I'm even bitter about what I'm going through, but I didn't do anything to bring this on into my life. I'm clear on that. And that's the, the, the rebuttal that Job keeps, to, keeps giving in these cycles of dialogue. Well, the friends give counter rebuttals again and it keeps going through these chapters look at job 15 eliphaz he's accusing job of not fearing god he says you don't fear god enough verse 4 but you are doing away with the fear of god and hindering meditation before god he's saying that and then chapter 18 bildad uh, the shuhite answered saying god punishes the wicked look at verse 8 for he cast He is cast into a net, a wicked person, by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. Saying, Job, you've trapped yourself. And it goes on, chapter 20 is where Zophar is saying, the wicked, they will suffer. And then look at chapter 22. This is Eliphaz. And this is where, again, a counselor gets very personal and very specific and very biting to guilt trip Job. Look at verse 5. He says, he's cranking it up. Is not your evil abundant? Now, Eliphaz is going to make up a bunch of things about Job at this point. There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. Listen to these indictments. They're very personal and they're fallacious. They're not true. It says, you've given no water to the weary to drink and you've withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and, and the favored man lived in it. 
In other words, you had all this wealth and you held it to yourself. Look at verse 9. You sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. In other words, you've gone against the orphan and the widow. You've left people hungry. You must have been this despicable person. That's the only way I can make sense of all the catastrophe that's happening. Now, we might stand back and say, wow, those guys were creeps, right? They were a joke in terms of their counsel. But we have to be very careful by what we say and by what we don't say. Sometimes when we don't speak up and give people the gospel of grace and say, listen, I don't understand why this is happening to you. I love you. I'm with you. Um, Love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I believe the best about you. Let's pray through this suffering time. And let's not try to always figure everything out, but let's trust God even when life is so hard. Let's persevere through the trial together. If you're not proactive that way, sometimes your silence can somehow imply that you think that someone brought this onto themselves and we don't even necessarily have those kinds of data points or, or factors in our minds at all. If we don't know that someone has sinned, we should assume the best. And we should also not try to figure everything out and say, well, because of this sin, that's happened to you. That's God's business. We leave that to the Lord. And we're humbled ourselves by our own sin that nobody knows about, right? We, we look in the mirror first as we approach others and try to minister grace to people through suffering. Because the beauty of the book of Job is that we get an insight into what was going on in heaven that Job didn't have. And so we get to see why this was happening and how off base the counsel was that was being given Job and how much he had to endure because he didn't know why this was happening to him. The point is, is that nothing could destroy authentic, genuine faith. Job's faith was not going to be destroyed because it originated with God. And no matter how much Satan was able to touch his body and crush his life, nothing was going to destroy the work of God in the heart of Job. Job would be vindicated and God would be vindicated. That's why Job was suffering. But his steadfastness is very instructive to us. First of all, we've, we've seen, we've sort of asked the question, why should Job have quit? Now we're going to ask the question, why Job didn't quit? This is really an answer to that question. Why Job didn't quit? Why didn't he quit? You know why? Because his faith was authentic. It's what I just said. He was the real thing. If you turn back to James chapter 5, you see the position that Job was in. He's, He's put in the same company with the prophets who were blessed. Look at verse 11. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Guess what? Job was in the blessed category. Job wasn't happy as he was suffering, but he was affirmed by God. That's what blessing means here. It's not happy blessing. This is affirmation blessing. This is God's approval on Job's life. And that's why he was able to be steadfast. He was fulfilling a purpose, as verse 11 says. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. He was fulfilling this divine purpose in the councils of heaven to show that his faith would not be destroyed. His faith was authentic. We looked at Job 3, um, sort of a few verses there about Job despising the day of his birth, about how he wishes he would have never been born to endure and have to go through this. He definitely bemoaned his circumstances. He was real about his suffering. 
Secondly, he bemoaned his counselors. He wasn't really buying into the Kool-Aid that they were wanting him to drink. Look at chapter 16. Sect 16, verse 2. I have heard many such things, him talking to his counselors. Miserable comforters are you all. He understood that. Job 13, 4 and 5. His faith was real enough for him to see through this false teaching that they were giving him. He said, as for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. The best thing you could have done was to stay quiet. You cried for me, you were quiet, and then you had to speak and mess everything up. His rebuke is much like Jesus to the Pharisees whose father was the father of lies, right? The Pharisees were satanically driven, and he's saying, look, you are giving me whitewashed lies. You're giving me superficial counsel, and you're ignoring the integrity of my own heart in the most desperate time of my life. This is Job. He understood that. But he also, in the midst of everything else that was happening, you know what he did? He trusted God. And that's the number one takeaway as you look at the life of Job. He trusted God. Look at Job chapter 1. After that barrage of satanic attack where everything was stripped away, verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. He didn't fall apart in histrionics by ripping his clothes. That was very traditional and it was a way for a man to say, listen, I am naked. Before my God, just like a newborn baby, I am as helpless as that in this situation. So I'm going to shave my head and rip my clothes off and I'm going to bow before my God. Remember that allusion to Steve Jobs and how he said that when you understand that death is coming for you, you're just naked. You don't have anything to lose. Well, if you have authentic saving faith, you really do understand that because you don't just live for this life. That's going to end. But you live understanding that there is a life to come. You have an eternity to experience with God. And so your investment isn't just in your own joy in this life. But it's for the life to come. So what did he say? He said naked. Verse 21. I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Guess what? Job struggled out loud. He definitely was accusing God of leaving him. And he did sin in microcosmic ways. But in the macro, and that's what this writer is saying here, in the macro, Job never apostatized. He never walked away from God ultimately. And in the ultimate sense, he did not do that sin against God. Definitely wasn't accusing at this point, but all through this storyline, Job's heartbeat is pulsing for God. And let me show you where that's true. If you look at Job 2 verse 10, as he he confronted his wife who said, curse God and die. He said, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? evil? That's Job 2 verse 10. He goes on from there. You have Job 16. Turn to Job 16 where, again, we see Job's faith pulse alive and well. Job 16, verse 19. 
says, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Even though friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God. He didn't reject God. Look at verse or chapter 19, verse 25. For I know, and this is a familiar verse, right? I know my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. This is Jesus he's talking about. Job, as a prophet-like man of God, doesn't have the clear, full, focused picture of Jesus as the Redeemer, but he knows that there's a Redeemer who lives, who would suffer the agony and wrath of our sin on our behalf, endure that suffering, rise again on the third day, so that as he stands in the new heavens and the new earth, we too will stand. And Job didn't even know how precise and how prophetic these words were for all of the Christian kingdom. Another place, another very familiar verse, Job 13. Look at this. Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Have you heard of that? Hope here is not a superficial wish. It is a divine guarantee. Hope is synonymous. It's a synonym for faith. I will trust in him. Though he slay me, I will have hope. And we all have that hope. A divine guarantee of the promise of God. He trusted the Lord. One more place. Job 23, quickly. We've already looked at verses 8 and 9. He's looking for God. He's going upward, sideways, everywhere. He can't find him. He can't perceive him. But verse 10, he appeals to God's knowledge of him. He says, I can't find God. But he says, I know God knows where I am. Look at verse 10. He knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way, and I have not turned aside. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. He says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. When you can't find God... When you think he's gone, when you're at the end, you can find him here. When, you're, when you can't eat anymore, you're just sick with your circumstances. And you're suffering at that level. And your friends have turned their backs on you. You go to God's word as more than your necessary food. This is your life source. This is your love letter to your own heart where you can say, God, I know I can't feel you. I really can't find you. But by faith, I'm going to find you in the word. I'm going to feed on the truth of scripture. That's what he did. And guess what? God loved him after all. God loved him. His faith was authentic. This is why he didn't quit. And God loved him. He was under the affirmation and blessing of God. And we know this by the end of the story. If you turn to Job 38, Job 38, Elihu, he's sort of brought up the rear in terms of being a junior counselor. He gives some decent counsel, but then the Lord speaks. The Lord opens his mouth on the matter, and the great counselor speaks. Verse 1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So he confronts the counsel that's been going on. It's words without knowledge. And he looks at Job and says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known and you make it known to me. In other words, I'm going to question your counsel. I'm going to question your doubts. I'm going to question your fear. And I'm going to ask you to step up now and answer me. And I'm going to ask you to repent of your lack of trust. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. For the next chapter, he gives this display of how God is the cosmic Lord. He's over all of the cosmos. He is the founder of all things. He has all wisdom on everything that's going on. All of the life that teems over this terra firma is under God's control. His perfect timing, his perfect will, his immense and beautiful creative handiwork that's on display, shouting the glory of this sovereign God. And that's what he opens up in chapter 38 and 39. And then we come to chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, God is speaking again directly to him. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So he brings Job to the edge of himself and says, listen, instead of making arguments against me, instead of wanting to take me to court, let me take you to court for your own good. Let me give you the only focus that can get you through something this hard, and that is to trust God. God is not giving Job counsel about the spiritual warfare or even the rationale for why he allowed Satan to do this. God is saying, all eyes on me. Trust me. I'm the only life source that you can fall on at this point. And if you've ever been brought to the end of yourself, you know that counsel like this is pure gold. It does away with all the, though I wonder why he didn't say it this way or that. When you're brought to the end of yourself, all you want is somebody to say, look, fall into my arms. And that's what Job did. Verse 3, Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Puts his hand over his mouth as a sign of submission. Now, if you're a zoologist and a geologist for the next few chapters, you're on fire with all that the Lord talks about in terms of his creative handiwork with the world and with how it works and with how animals like Leviathan and Behemoth, you know, dance and sprint and dive around the world for God's good pleasure. And then you have more of Job's confession. Verse 2 of chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Talk about a verse on the sovereignty of God. You can do it all and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Verse 6, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's the right place to be. And that's where Job ended up. The steadfastness of Job. How easy would it have been for him to just buy into this wrong counseling that was going on, but his faith wouldn't let him. He trusted God, not man. 
through the trial, through the storm. And what did God do? And I had not noticed this. I've read Job. I've studied through the whole book before and taught it before. But I had not really meditated on the fact that in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 42, that Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar were actually restored in fellowship with Job again. God was concerned to make that right and reconcile that. Look at verse 7. There's grace here. He, he's speaking to Job in regards to Eliphaz. He says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, Eliphaz. For you have not spoken for me what is right as my servant Job has. And so then he instructs um, a sacrifice to be made, seven bulls, seven rams. And then go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer. And that's exactly what they did as a counseling team that failed. They made it right and they repented and Job prayed for them and there was reconciliation. Can you believe that? After all they put him through, there was peace. There was re- it, does that give us a little grace with our failed counseling? It's good news, even for us. Even when we're trying to be biblical, even when we're trying to get it right for somebody, there's grace. And God superintends over even our failed attempts in life. Now look at this, verses 10 through the end, Job is restored. He's given twofold of everything that he lost. And you know what this is? This is a window into heaven. One day there's going to be a fire that burns up our world and there will be a new creation of the new heavens and the new earth. You can read it at the book of Revela- at the end of Revelation. We're going to be restored in terms of our health, in terms of our relationships, in terms of our sin. Everything is ultimately reconciled and made right physically, spiritually, and emotionally before our God. And Job got to taste it in this world, but it's a foretaste of what heaven looks like. Look at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then brothers and sisters are coming to him, and they're giving him gifts, and there's restoration of not only Job's wealth, but his reputation is put back in place. He's, he's right with God. He really wasn't someone who was hiding sin, and so they're gifting him for these things. And then he's given his livestock back. He's given his business back, his industry. And then verse 13, he, also, he had also seven sons and three daughters, which could imply that his marriage was made right again and they were able to together have the same number of children as they had before. What a blessing. And the blessing of the knowledge that they were going to have long, prosperous lives with many generations. Look at verse 15. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. He endured. Are you ready to persevere all the way to the finish line, all the way to heaven? We have to have the patience of a farmer, of a soldier, of an athlete. We've got to be a soldier like Job. We've got to be a soldier like the prophets. We've got to be willing to go the distance in this way. Let's look at a few applications. Number one, 
your Christian prayer request. This is a prayer request of faith should be for yourself, for your family, and for others. Those you want want to evangelize and those who you want to build up in the faith. You want people to not only believe in Jesus, but you want them to persevere in faith. Isn't that true? Isn't that really the, the deepest prayer request that you have for your kids? You want them to persevere? You want them to keep going? How heartbreaking it is when we see people veer off the path. But we pray that we don't and that others around us won't. We're not looking for religious perfection. We don't want to heap that on people's shoulders. We want people to persevere and keep going. Number two, prepare yourself for the unforeseeable catastrophe that will befall you and me. Things that we can't expect. Life-changing scenarios, circumstances that, you know, six months ago, three weeks ago, we would have never imagined can and do and will happen to us. And the way to prepare for those catastrophes is to study and learn the sovereignty of God. That is the lesson of this book of the Bible. Where were you when I created it all and no purpose of God can be thwarted? That's the lesson. That's the preparation. That's the iron that you put in your heart. That's how you have the steadfastness of Job Number three, reject the lie that says life circumstances rise and fall according to religious performance. Please reject that lie. Don't get caught up in a treadmill faith. You want to live a faith that's authentic and genuine and based on love for the Lord and his blessing on your life. Number four, trust God's heart, plan, and reward for you more than wrestling with the question, why is my life so hard? You've got a decision to make every morning. You can either swing your legs out of bed and land on the floor and go, oh, you know, I'm going to now meditate upon how hard my life is. And I've got to start at the bottom before I can get to the top. I've got to think about the effects of the fall in my life, my aching back, my unpaid bills, my difficult situation, my circumstance that's so hard. I can't figure it out. Or you can swing your legs out on the other side of the bed and you're thinking, and you can say, I'm going to trust God no matter what. God... Whatever's going wrong in my life, you are sovereign and you are Lord. And I'm going to start there. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and I'm going to start with trust, not doubt. Isn't that a better way to start? Let's trust God together as a church, trusting his sovereign rule, protection and love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.